Now, some of you are going to be traumatized. I want to give you a warning about this. Uh, we have therapists available if you need some uh, follow-up counseling, but I'm not going to ask you to turn to the book of Luke. Heresy! <laughs> then again, I am the heretic, so... <laughs> uh, yeah. Nothing new on that account. In fact, for the next four weeks, we're not going to be turning to the book of Luke. Um, we may reference him on occasion, but we're taking a break from our systematic study of the book of Luke, uh, which is what we normally do, but we're going to be looking at a topic. And the topic, frankly, folks, is one that could not be more important. That's why we're taking four weeks out to look at it. Uh, for the next four weeks, starting this morning, we're going to be looking at the issue, the, the topic of worship, praise and worship. And here's why. Uh, we have uh, absorbed a lot of new people the last two to three years. The survey that we did, which is very informative for us, shows us that about half the congregation has been here three years or less. Uh, that means about half the congregation, and maybe more than that, uh, have never heard kind of our theology and vision of worship. And we have a very distinct, uh, I think very biblical theology of, of uh, praise and worship. Uh, but a lot of folks don't know it. Uh, maybe partly as a result of that, and maybe partly for other factors, we have sensed in the last year especially, uh, a sort of, we, a little of the air has been let out of the tire in terms of worship. We have some services that blow the roof off, and, and the power of God comes down and blesses folks. And I know a lot of you, for a lot of you, this is like off the charts. You've never had anything like this. But from our perspective, uh, some of the passion of worship has been lost, at least at times. And so we want to have a, an occasion where we, we bring this together and get us all on the same page. There are some folks who come who, uh, they've just been taught this way, that worship is, is sort of just a prelude to the sermon, and sort of the warm-up for the sermon. And that means it's kind of optional, which is why, you know, some don't worry about coming to part of the worship. They, as long as they get here for the sermon, they feel like they've gotten the gist of it. And our theology and our vision for worship is very different than that. And so I want you to be listening up on this. Um, this burns in my heart with, with an urgency I can't express. Uh, I, in preparation for this four-part series, I looked at every passage in the Bible that directly or indirectly deals with worship and praise. And I can't give you all of that, of course, but, but, but what I'm going to be giving here comes out of this, this full study of this. And there's things that I learned as I was doing this that I didn't know before. So we are going to become a congregation of people that just, my, our prayer, our vision is, that just uh, erupt every time we come together in praise and worship. And that's not, that's not, amen, that's not just about being rowdy, uh, about how loud we are, or how many people's hands are raised, or anything of the sort. It's about having hearts that are in line with God, that are focused on God. And when we do that, it creates sort of like the pipeline whereby the Spirit of God comes down and invades us. Um, and it's beautiful. And things happen when the people of God worship God passionately. When everybody's on the same page. Now, we'll never get everybody in any service all there because people are in different places. But we need a core group of people who every time they come, they immediately are focused on God and, and are sold out and abandoned passionate worship of God. And when that happens, the power of God can come down on us in ways that we other, otherwise would never experience. And things happen in that environment that otherwise could never happen. Uh, it, it's, it's absolutely crucial. The other night, 
our small group got together and uh, with some friends, and we had just uh, one guy playing a guitar. And it wasn't loud at all. Not everyone had their hands raised. Most of the time, the hands weren't raised. And, and not everyone was singing all the time. But all of our hearts were aligned with God, and we were focused. And the power of God came down on us in this beautiful, tender, powerful, transforming way. And we were going to worship for 20 minutes or something. We ended up going for about an hour and a half. It was just beautiful. And see, our prayer is that this, this, when we come together, and this is a biblical pattern you see throughout biblical history, the people of God come together, and when our hearts are in line, there's a unique kind of anointing that happens. Uh, and the Shekinah glory comes down. It's a word in the Old Testament for the glory of God. And uh, it's beautiful. That's where we're aiming at. So I want to title this message, Dancing with God. Because that, as a matter of fact, is what we do when we are involved in passionate worship. Let me pray here for a moment. Father, in Jesus' name, I submit this message to you and this whole series to you. And I pray, Lord, that you use it to make in us, wherever we're at in terms of our present worship of you, I pray, Lord, that you use this to just take it up a notch or ten. That we become a people who know how to fully, completely, passionately enter into worship and praise and experience the transforming power of that. But Lord, I am aware that my words can't do that. And so I just surrender and relax in the sufficiency of your spirit to take this teaching and infuse it with your authority and change us. Change us. Change us, Lord. Free us. Help us to forget everything we think we know about worship and praise and to learn from you. For it all comes directly from your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There's three words, three main words, that are used in the Bible to, to describe worship. And when I describe worship, when I say worship uh, or praise for this next four weeks, I am not referring to the, the truth that our whole life should be an act of worship. Uh, that is true. We talk about that a lot. But I'm referring to special set-apart times, individually in our small groups, and I have a special emphasis on when we come together on the weekends, that are set aside to worship God. And there's three main words that describe that in the Bible. The first word is simply worship. And that has to do with uh, just reflecting who God is. You worship God because he's God. A second word is praise. And that tends to be, you can't make ironclad distinctions here because there's a lot of crossing over, but generally speaking, praise is associated with what God does. Worship is about who God is. Praise is about what God does. Worship tends to be more quiet and reflective. Praise tends to be more celebratory. And then there's a third word, which is to uh, glorify, to glorify God. And the word glory just means to shine, to manifest. And so we are to be a people who shine the glory of God, to manifest the glory of God. And we do that by how we worship, and we do that by how we praise. What worship and praise are at their essence is this. It's about ascribing worth to God. We say, God, here's what you're worth. We worship means ascribing worth to God. It says this in 1 Chronicles 16. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. You find that phrase a number of times throughout the Bible. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The biblical concept of name, Shem in Hebrew, uh, has to do with character. 
And so we're supposed to ascribe to the Lord the glory, the shininess, the radiance, the beauty that is appropriate to his character. We simply say and sing what is true. And then the passage goes on to say, bring an offering and come before him. Worship and praise almost always involves sacrifice. And then it says, worship the Lord in the, in the splendor of his holiness. The splendor of his holiness. Put on display the beauty, the holiness, the glory of God. That's what worship is. Now here's what worship is not. There's a number of things that worship is not that I'll be covering in the next three weeks after this one. But here's a, a misconception that I found a number of people have, especially people who are, are not disciples yet. Uh, they're checking out the Christian faith or they're new disciples. And thank God we've got a lot of folks around here that are in that stage. They're sort of kicking the tires, not sure about this Christianity thing, uh, but they're interested. And they have uh, very commonly this objection or this question about worship. Uh, a guy about a year ago came up on stage after service and he said this, um, you know, I, I, I've heard your arguments, your reasoning for why you believe Jesus is the Son of God. And actually, they're, they're, they're really strong, and I'm inclined to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But I don't get this worship thing. I, I just don't understand it. It feels like, like humiliating, uh, dehumanizing. Um, why would God need our worship? What need is being met when we worship God? God's up there, and, and the Bible says he's a jealous God. What's up with that? And he's saying, worship me. Don't worship anyone else. He doesn't like any competition. Worship me. Give me the glory. Give me the praise. And the guy says, I, don't, I just don't get it. Here we are, bowing down. Yes, you are God. You are God. And, and, and uh, uh, it just felt dehumanizing to him. The picture I, I, I think was going on in his brain is something like this. Uh, some of you who are in the 50-ish age group or so, approaching it or just after it, may remember uh, back in the 60s, the black and white uh, television uh, show, The Twilight Zone, with Rod Sterling. Remember him? And he always would come out with that cigarette, you've entered The Twilight Zone. And, and just the way he said it was so eerie. And as a little kid, I love that show. Love that show. There's one episode you may recall, if you're in the 50-ish uh, realm, the realm of the 50s. I'm 50! <laughs> um, there's this, this episode where uh, these three astronauts were out in outer space and they visited this planet to check it out. That's what they're supposed to do. And they come to this one planet and one of the astronauts discovers that, uh, a civilization of very, very tiny people. Remember that one? And uh, uh, he discovers that he's got tremendous power because he's about 100 times bigger than all these little people. I mean, probably 1,000 times bigger. They're like little ants. You can't even see them on the television show. Uh, and he sets himself up as their god. And just to make sure that they're in line, once in a while he'll squish him or terrorize him in some way. And so he has this civilization worship him. They have to create a statue of him. Uh, you know, they have to wait on him and, and meet his needs and all things like that. And he is the god of this little civilization. And he gets so enamored with this that when it comes time to leave this planet, he won't go. So his two friends have to take off without him. And then, as, as Providence would have it, shortly after his friends leave, uh, some other astronauts show up from a different planet that are about a thousand times bigger than him, and he accidentally gets stepped on. <laughs> uh, that's what happens when you set yourself up as God. Don't do that. It's not. Uh, you... Well, this guy had this picture, I think, and a lot of people have this picture of God as sort of this giant astronaut. He's up there. He's got the power. He can send us to hell if he wants. He can send all sorts of terrible things our way, diseases and whatever. And so we worship him, sort of to keep him off our back. We're terrorized. Oh, we worship you, Almighty One. Please don't squish us. Please don't boil us. Please don't send us to hell. And don't step on us. 
And some kings throughout history have done stuff like that. You know, the, the pharaohs and, and Xerxes and, and other mighty kings who've got this power to kill and destroy. Well, they demand worship. Bow down before me. And so all the people are like, oh, yes, almighty one, thou gracious, kind, benevolent. You know, while well, he's getting ready to kill him. Benevolent one. You say whatever you got to say because you don't want to get boiled. That's not why we worship God. Now, there is, for unredeemed people, a, a, a sort of uh, awesomeness, terror even, when you come in the presence of God. But for the followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we don't worship God because he terrorizes us. We're not the little ants afraid of the giant astronaut. We worship God because he is the source of all that is good. We worship God because he's beautiful. I want to do a reframe here. It's so important that we get this. Um, Here's the reframe. God, God is, is in, in and of himself, the one eternal reality. And as this one eternal reality, he is love itself, the standard against which all other loves are simply an approximation. He's, he is infinite love, and he's the source of all love. He's infinite goodness and the source of all that is good. He is life itself and the source of all life. He is joy itself and the source of all joy. He is beauty itself and the source of all that is beautiful. And when we worship, ascribe worth to him, we simply are saying that. God, you are the source of all that is good and wonderful and true and beautiful. And as we ascribe worth to God about him being the source of all that is good and true and beautiful, we participate in all that is good and true and beautiful. We become mirrors, as it were, whose job it is to reflect the sun. The sun shines light. We are not ourselves a source of light, but we're mirrors of the light. And as we reflect that light, we're warmed by the sun. And that's, in essence, what worship is. Worship is about God pouring his life and his beauty and his love and his joy into us. And then we just reflect it back. And we simply say what is true about God. And we express what is true about God. And we sing what is true about God. Uh, Worship is, as I said in the title, dancing with the triune God. It's dancing with the Trinity. Think about it this way. God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout eternity, God has been this eternal dance of triune love, the dance of the Trinity, where the love of the Father for the Son uh, and the Spirit flows out, and the love of the Son for the Spirit and the Father flows out, and there's this eternal flow of love and beauty. They reflect each other, as it were. There's this dance that goes on throughout eternity, and it is the, it is the, the pinnacle, the ultimate expression of life and beauty and love and goodness. God created the world to express the beauty that he is, and he created the world to invite others in on this dance. And so Jesus Christ comes into this world, and part of what happens is that when we believe in Jesus and surrender our life to Jesus, the Bible says we are placed inside of Jesus. We are in Christ. And since we're located in Christ, we're seated with Christ, uh, we now become participants in this eternal, beautiful, ecstatic, triune dance. And this is what the Bible means when it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we're made participants in the divine nature. We participate in the love that is God and in the joy that is God, in the beauty that is God. And when non-God beings participate in the dance that is God, it's called worship. We simply say what is true. We reflect what is true. We dance with the triune God, and that is worship. We ascribe infinite worth to God because he has infinite worth. We ascribe infinite love and value and beauty to God. We become mirrors 
of the one who is the source of all that is good and life-giving and true and beautiful. And far from being dehumanizing or undignifying or demeaning, it is the most dignifying, life-giving, glorious activity that human beings could ever, ever be involved in. We get to dance with the triune God. We get to reflect the glory of God. Think about it this way. If God made anything else the purpose and the object of our existence, he'd be shortchanging us by giving himself as the ultimate worth of our existence. He's giving us the highest thing. He is the highest thing. And, and by allowing us to be a dance partner of his and to reflect his glory, it is the highest calling, most liberating calling, most glorious calling, most exalted calling we could ever have. Because, in fact, God is the source of all that is true and lovely and beautiful and good. This is why it's absolutely wrong for an astronaut to demand this or for a king to demand this. Because an astronaut and, and a king and anyone else on the planet, they are, they're not the source. They're simply mirrors. And when a mirror who is not the source pretends like they are the source, well, at best, that's inaccurate. In fact, the Bible calls it blasphemy. Uh, to make yourself the object of someone else's worship is absolutely uh, uh, misguided. It's, it, it's, it, it's wrong. It's because you're not the source. Only God is the source. This is why the Bible says God is a jealous God. In, in Exodus 34, it says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name, which means his character, his character is jealous. He is a jealous God. Now that doesn't mean he's an egotistical, needy astronaut maniac who's out there with, trying to meet needs. See, whenever a, a non-God being demands worship, they're meeting a need in their life. They're trying to, you know, get something. God doesn't need worship uh, to help his self-esteem or something. God's not up there jealous because he's so needy. He's afraid of the competition or anything of the sort. God is a jealous God, not for his sake, but for our sake. Because God knows what we need to know. And that is that when we worship anything other than him, we are cutting ourselves off from the one true source because he is the one true source. We are harming ourselves because we're cutting ourselves off from the source of all that is life and all that is love and all that is good and all that is beautiful. When we give ultimate value and make the purpose of our existence things like our cars and our houses and our clothes and our sex appeal and the talent that we have and, and, and our reputation or our religion or the statue of Buddha or whatever you want, whenever anything in life, in the world, becomes a source of ultimate worth, to that degree we're cutting ourselves off from the real source. And the devil may get us to believe that those things are actually giving us life, but as a matter of fact, those things are sucking life off of us. God reveals himself to be a jealous God. Not because he's a killjoy, party kill, you know, God who doesn't want us to have any fun. Quite the opposite. He declares himself to be a jealous God because he wants us to have life and to have it more abundantly. He wants us to know true joy and true love and, and, and to be a dance partner with his. He knows that these other things are not life-giving. They're life-stealing. They're life-destroying. And so he's a jealous God out of his tremendous passionate love for us. And he calls on us to keep our eyes focused on him and to make him the sole source of ultimate worth, to make him the object of our praise and to make him the object of our worship, to come and dance with him alone. And I will say this, that you are only as free as you know the truth of what I just said. You are only as free as you are 
focused on God as your sole source of life and value and worth and significance. Because the truth is that idols are diabolical bondage. And when we worship anything else, give too much value to anything else, yeah, you enjoy it, yeah, you like it, that's fine, nothing wrong with that. But when we give ultimate worth to anything other than God, well, we're blocking ourselves off from the source of life and we are in bondage. Freedom, far from being a dehumanizing thing or a humiliating thing, when we worship God, when we make him the focus of our existence and we express that in song and in dance and in any other way, we are entering into freedom, praise God. That is liberating. Uh, now, now you're tapping into the source uh, behind all goodness and the source behind all love and the source behind all life. He is the source of all. Now, why do we worship God? Why do we worship God? Uh, some people, as I mentioned earlier, see from their backgrounds, they think worship is really just a prelude to the sermon. Kind of like this to get people warmed up for the real important thing, which is the sermon. But in fact, that's not why we worship God. That's not why we sing songs. We don't worship because we like certain songs. We don't worship because it's fun. We don't worship because it makes us feel good. We don't worship because that's what churches are supposed to do. We don't worship because we're trying to impress people with our excellent musicians so they'll come to our church instead of the church down the road or anything silly and stupid and carnal like that. That's not why we worship God. Here's why we worship God. I do this exhaustive study. Here's the top six reasons why we worship God. Number one, because he's God. Because he is God. You don't need to say anything more than that. You are my God, the psalmist says, and I will praise you. That's all I need to know. You are my God. That's all I need to know, and so I will exalt you. He is God, and our purpose in life is to mirror and therefore participate in his godness, his, 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 his beauty, his love, his goodness. He is God. As long as God is God, it'll be appropriate to worship him, and I think he's going to be God for a long time, so you better get used to it. Number two. We worship God because he's worthy. He's not like some astronaut who's, giant astronaut who's just threatening to boil us if we don't worship him. We don't worship him out of a terrorized spirit. We worship him because he's worthy. Great is the Lord, the Bible says hundreds of times, and most worthy of praise. As the one source of life and love and beauty and goodness and joy, as the one source, he's worthy of all of our praise, of all of our adoration, and no one else is. Which leads to the third reason the Bible gives for worshiping God. Hundreds of times it says worship God because he is holy. I will sing the Lord, I, I, I exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Now the word holy denotes two things. First of all, its main meaning is to be set apart, to be unique, to be distinct. That's what holiness is. And so we worship God because he's, he's unique, he's distinct. He's unlike anything else in creation because he's the one being who's not created. He's the one being who created everything else. He's not like any, that's why we say around here a lot, there's no God like our God. Everything else, however exalted it may be, all the angels, all the principalities and powers, however powerful they may be, they're created beings. But God is one of a kind God. And he's to be worshipped because he's a one-of-a-kind God. And the second connotation of holiness falls right on it. Because he's the one-of-a-kind God and the creator of all, he is the absolute of all that is valuable. And he's the only one who is. His love is the standard against which all other love is measured. His joy is the standard against which all other joy is, is measured. His goodness is the standard against which all other goodness is measured. He's one-of-a-kind. And so we, we, we worship him because of that. He's a holy God. We bow our knees before him because our God is holy. The fourth reason we worship God 
is because he's good. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Praise the Lord, O my soul, the Bible says hundreds of times, and forget not all of his benefits. Uh, we worship God because he's God, because he's uh, worthy, because he's holy, and also because he's been good to us. This falls more into the category of praise. We praise God because of his benefits. He's blessed us. The Bible says that every good, every good gift comes from the Father above. Whatever is good about your life, it's ultimately traceable back to God. Now, there's probably a lot of stuff in your life that isn't good. That's ultimately traceable back to Satan. But all the good stuff, every good gift, God uses other people and other means to bring the goodness to us. But ultimately, our job is to give God the glory for all that is good. And so we are to be a people in a world, of, in, in a world populated with worldlings who just take everything for granted and they think they got it coming and they have an entitlement mentality. We are to be a tribe of people who know, uh, who give credit where credit is due and, and all credit is due God. And so your life that you have right now, that's the, that reflects the goodness of God. Some people didn't wake up this morning, you did give God the glory for it. You just took another breath, praise God. You know, he, he got you out of bed this morning, praise God. He got you on the way, like that song we sing. He woke me up this morning, started me on my way, put food on the table. Uh, I can never remember the next alert, but whatever it was, it's good. And, and God does that. See, all that you have, the relationships that you have, the health that you have, you know, the, 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 whatever in spiritual enlightenment you have, it all is to the glory of God. It all is traceable back to God. And our job is to say, thank you, God. Forget not his benefits. Praise God, because God is good. God is good. God is good. We live in a war zone world where there's a lot of stuff that comes our way that's not good, but God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Log it in. Number five, very important one, we worship God because it's commanded. Even if you didn't understand any of the theology I'm giving now, it'd be enough to know that the Bible commands it. And if you are a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, your job is to uh, submit to his commands. It's commanded. You find this hundreds of times in the Bible. Praise the Lord. That's an imperative. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. It's a command. Now, if it's a command, it's not an option. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't just sort of a recommendation. It's a command. Right along the lines of, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery. When God says thou shalt not commit adultery, it's a command. It doesn't matter that you feel like committing adultery. It doesn't matter that you're in the mood to commit adultery. It doesn't matter that you got all the excuses in the world why you should be able to commit adultery. That doesn't matter. It's a command of God, and God knows best, so our job is to obey the command. Somebody say amen. amen. And so when God commands us to praise him, it's right up there with the command not to commit adultery, not to steal, uh, not to blaspheme, whatever. It doesn't matter what your mood is. doesn't matter what your disposition is. doesn't matter what your circumstances in life are. I don't care how good your marriage is going or how, how bad it's going. I don't care what's happening with the kids. I don't care what kind of gas pains you're having at the moment. It's a command. And our job is to obey the command. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so this is a matter of urgency that we become a people who individually and collectively worship God, praise God, lift up his name. It's, it's, it's a command to cultivate a lifestyle of praise and worship. Which leads to my sixth point. Worship and praise is what we're created and saved to do. We are created to dance with God. You know, the, uh, a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible of, uh, for salvation is the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. When they were in bondage to Egypt, God brought them out of Egypt. And if you look at those passages, you'll find uh, about 15 times 
God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and they say this, verbatim, this is what they say. The Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my people go so they may worship me. God is delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt primarily so they will now be free to worship him. That means he's not primarily delivering out of Egypt because he wants them to be free of their suffering. Though he does want that. That's one of the reasons, but it's not the main reason. He's not delivering them out of Egypt because he wants to punish the Egyptians and punish the the Canaanites. Though that also is part of his plan, but it's not the main reason. The main reason why God is redeeming the Israelites out of Egypt is because he wants to create a dance partner, a national dance partner, a people who know who he is, a people who reflect his glory, a people who praise him. So it is with us. When we're saved, when we are aligned with Jesus Christ and our life is surrendered to Jesus Christ, there's a lot of fringe benefits, there's a lot of great stuff, and there's a lot of purposes that God uses us for. But the center of the whole thing, the ultimate reason, is because God wants to raise up a people who know him and who reflect his glory and who worship him and who praise him. In Isaiah 43, the Lord says, I form this people for myself so that they may proclaim my praise. There's a lot of other things. I'm going to use them to reach the whole world. I want to use them in all these different capacities. But the main thing is God is is raising up a people so that they will proclaim his praise. They know the liberating beauty of worshiping the Lord God. And here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 1. This is a powerful passage. God, listen to this, listen very carefully. God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I predestined you to be in Christ or not in Christ, but I predestined that all who are in Christ will be adopted as sons. In accordance with his pleasure and will. This is what he pleased to do. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, that is Jesus Christ. When we're put in Jesus Christ, the same love the Father has for the Son is now directed towards us, and that puts on display, it glorifies his grace. Now listen to this. In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Why? In order that. Everybody say, in order that. that. Here's the main purpose right here. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be, might exist, might exist throughout eternity, for the praise of his glory. Now this is theologically thick and I can't get into all the issues here, but let me just say this. The passage isn't saying that we were individually predestined to be in Christ while others were what? Individually predestined to go to hell. It's not saying that. It's saying that all who are in Christ, there's a lot of stuff predestined for you. You will be adopted as sons and you'll exist for the praise of his glory. That is predestined, but whether or not you're in Christ to have all this predestined stuff apply to you, you have something to do with that. God wants all to be saved and doesn't want anyone to perish. Secondly, the passage doesn't say that everything that happens was predestined by God. Thank God for that because there's a lot of crappy stuff that happens in in, in world history. What he says, if you look at it carefully, God works out everything in conformity with his will. A lot of stuff happens that's not his will, but God is still involved in it to work out everything in conformity with his will, in conformity with his predestined plan. And what is his will and what is his predestined plan? It is to have a people who reflect his praise. From the foundation of the world, Paul is saying, God's plan was this. 
To have a people in Christ who reflect his glory, who reflect his mercy, who reflect his grace, who reflect his holiness, who reflect his goodness. To have a people, this has been the plan throughout eternity. Whatever else happens in world history, God is at it working towards this end. To have a people in Christ who praise him, who worship him, who dance with him, who celebrate him, who participate in the eternal dance of the triune God, who share in the ecstasy of the triune God, who experience God's life flowing into them and they reflect it back to God and they get up, caught up into the flow of the triune God. Worship and praise is the reason why we exist. Far from being an addendum to something else that's more important, far from being a, being a little prelude to a sermon, far from being optional, far from being a, a, a mini concert or a performance of any sort, worship and praise takes us to the very heart of what the kingdom is all about. We're created for this. We're saved for this. We're liberated for this. To be a people who worship God for who he is, who praise God for all that he has done, and in doing that, who live to bring glory to God, who glorify God. That is what worship and praise is all about. And maybe I hope now you can understand why I have a sense of urgency and passion about this. So I want to ask the worship team to come back up here. We're going to go into another time of worship. And I want to do it with this theology in mind. Let me give a couple of practical tips on this, and I'll be repeating these in the weeks to come. But remember, worship is about ascribing worth to God. That's all we're doing. We're ascribing worth to God. That means, number one, it's, not a, it's about God's worthiness, not your worthiness. Your worthiness is pretty inconsequential in the equation. See, a lot of people have this idea that they don't want to like raise their hands or get passionately into worship because they feel hypocritical because you know God knows what they were doing this morning or last night or this week or whatever. And they got the struggles and they got the sin, they got the bondage, and, and they just don't feel worthy to worship God. If there's a criteria of worthiness that we have to meet before we worship God, ain't none of us worshiping because none of us are worthy to worship God. But see, it's not about our worthiness, it's about His worthiness. So whatever, whatever the situation is, whatever the bondage may be, whatever the struggle may be, worship God. In fact, I'll tell you this, one of the best ways to break bondages in your life is to get involved in passionate praise and worship. Amen. Because in doing that, see, you're creating an open pipeline. And God, God, God flows his power and his spirit and his anointing into your life as you worship him. And that's what, what breaks the shackles and, and sets the captives free. That's how you get out of Egypt. You worship your way into freedom. So worship God, whatever the situation may be. Secondly, it's about God, which means it's not about my or your preferences. Uh, we worship God because he's God, because he's worthy, because he's good, because it's commanded. And it doesn't really matter whether you like this song or not, whether you know this song or not, whether you can keep rhythm with your foot or not. That really is inconsequential. It's not about you. It's about God. Guy that I know, famous uh, worship leader Graham Kendrick, one time was walking out of a, a, a worship service that he led. And um, uh, the guy he was walking out with said, um, you know, I, I didn't get much out of that, that uh, worship service. And Graham Kendrick said, oh, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know it was for you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I apologize, I didn't know it was for you. You see, and that, that's really the thing. The, our purpose is not to get something out of it. Our purpose is to invest a whole lot into it. Now, you'll find that as you invest a whole lot into it, you get a whole lot out of it. But we don't come to get a whole lot out of it. We come, we worship God because it's the right thing to do. And you may know, amen. 
And you may know the song, you may not know the song. You may like the song, you may not like the song. There's some songs you just can't sing to. That's fine. Still be ascribing worth to God. Know that other people are getting blessed even though this song doesn't bless you, but it's not about you. So you just, you just enter into it and ascribe worth to God and reflect God and, 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 and just in every possible way glorify God. So it's about God. It's not your worthiness. It's about God, not your preferences. And finally, it's about God, and therefore it is about your passion. Your passion. Uh, you, we... How you worship and how you praise is far, far, far more important than what you worship with and what you praise with. Uh, your voice quality doesn't matter. The music quality really is inconsequential. It's helpful if it doesn't get in the way, but it's, just, it's a means to an end. Passion is what it's all about, folks. Look, at, if I'm talking to somebody, they come up to me after service, I am communicating volumes about what they are worth to me in this moment by whether I'm paying attention to them or not. Am I exclusively focused on them, making eye contact? Or am I just kind of my dotting about, oh, hi there, hello, oh, hello, like some politician running for office. You know, you just got to shake every hand possible. Um, you see, I'm communicating worth. So also with God. We are ascribing worth to him by how we are in the moment focused on him. And if he has ultimate worth, and he does, and our job is to reflect that worth, and it is, then it means, by definition, worship is about having all of our attention on him and all of our heart invested in him uh, and all of our body involved in, in worshiping him. Every molecule of our being is to be directed Godward to ascribe worth unto God. We are worshiping as opposed to just doing a sing-along to the extent that we're doing that. Now, it's not easy. You come to church and you got a lot of things on your mind and a lot of different stuff, whatever. I just encourage you to collapse all of that. Forget all about that. Because the very act of doing that is ascribing worth to God. You're saying, God, you are worth more than my problems, more than my troubled marriage, more than my struggles with my kids, more than my ill health, more than the roast in the oven. I, I, you are worth more than that. And so I'm focusing on you. All my being is on you. And when you got 2,000 people in a room or even 100 people in a room that are doing that together, Boom! The power of God comes down. The pipeline is open. Our vision for Woodland Hills Church is that we become a va-boom congregation. <laughs> when, we, when we come here, we just know that our job now is to put everything else aside, collapse all judgment mechanisms, forget about the odor of the person next to you, and just ascribe worth to God. That is an act of worship. Now, the first thing we're going to do here this morning, we're going to go into another time of worship for about a half hour. I want to call the ushers forward, and we're going to start by taking up an offering, which is totally appropriate because in the Bible, offering was the centerpiece of worship. The passage I read earlier says this. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. That's, how, that's one of the main ways that we ascribe Glory to God's character. We're saying, God, here's what you're worth to me. And, and, and so we sacrifice. So I just encourage you to obey God in terms of the sacrifice you make to further his kingdom. And as we do that, know that you're worshiping God in the sacrifice. And then sing along with, with the music as you ascribe worth to God. And then we'll enter into a, a, a further time of worship. So Lord, right now we turn it over to you and ask you, Shekinah Glory, to come down and visit us. And Lord, would you just draw our hearts and draw our minds into singular, absolute, abandoned focus on you because you are worthy of that. Anything less is not reflecting the worth that you have. Call us, Lord, at this time, in this now, in this moment, 
to be a people who passionately and exuberantly enter into your praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. He's really amazing. He really is amazing. When we come together and we can have our hearts aligned like this, the stuff you believe can become an experienced reality. I know there are people here right now who experience the beauty of God's amazing love in a way that they never have before. Maybe they always believed in it, but they didn't participate in it. And worship is where the, it becomes real to us. In that sense, folks, we all need each other. There's a, there's a special anointing. I'll say more about this in the weeks to come, but a special anointing when we assemble together and we all make the choice to be a pipeline by which God's spirit flows and it blesses other people. Maybe you didn't need any particular thing here, but there are bondages that are being broken and people that are being touched and, and, and it, it, people are being set free. Amen. And so we do it because God is God and God is worthy and God is good and, and God is beautiful. We also have a, we do it because it's how we experience his reality. We also do it for one another. So I want to encourage us next week when we come together, make being here on time a priority so, and make the decision. And I understand sometimes life happens and you can't get on time. There's no judgment about that. But to make that a priority, to come together and make the decision to worship together. And I encourage you to start to cultivate a lifestyle where praise is always on your lips. Um, and you're worshiping God in your car and you worship God in the morning and, and you just become a, a praiser and a worshiper uh, and, and uh, you just exalt him in your life. Before I close in prayer, I want to say that if you're here and you have any need that you'd like to have prayed for, our altar teams will come up here and you folks who are at the altar, just feel free to stay. Uh, but they'll be up here if you want to pray with somebody, come forward to do that or if you just want to kneel with these folks, uh, feel free to do that. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Savior, the beautiful Savior, you haven't surrendered your life to Him, I just implore you to do that this morning. And if you come forward and talk to these folks, they'd love just to explain that to you and get you ushered into the kingdom. Lord, as we leave this place, we thank you for encountering us. We pray, Lord, that as we go out of here, Holy Spirit, will you remind us be a grateful people who are always acknowledging your goodness and a praising people who are always celebrating your benefits and a worshiping people who are always reflective of who you are. And Lord, when we come together again next week, Holy Spirit, remind us to focus and to give the Lord the glory that is due his name. And raise up here a people who just know the beauty of encountering the living God through outrageous, passionate worship and praise and who exist to glorify you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Go out and glorify God. Amen.